So our first reading today is from Genesis 17, and I'll read verses 9 through 14. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generation, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner whom is not your offspring. Both he who is born in the house and he who is bought with your own money shall be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Colossians chapter 2, 6 through 15. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus in the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with the circumcision made without hands, by a putting off of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And our uh, passage for today, Exodus chapter 4. And we'll start with verse 24. At a lodging place... On the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took out a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord that, uh, which had been sent to him to speak and all the signs that he commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. All right. So fun times. So, you know, Chris and I are big fans of expository preaching. You know, occasionally we'll pick a topic and start working through it. But for the most part, both of us, what we like to do is pick out a book and just kind of go through it. And there's several reasons we do this. Uh, first, um, the scriptures are given to us in these coherent units called books. And the structure of these books is intentional. Uh, so reading the books in their context helps us to better understand the meaning. Um, but also, uh, it lets the book guide our sermons, uh, allowing 
scripture to direct us rather than our own selves. You know, and we, we could just pick out a topic and then we can find verses to support, support our point. Uh, you know, the way many people uh, nowadays uh, decide they have a position and they Google, uh, uh, you know, articles on the Internet and everything to try to uh, support them. Uh, this kind of helps us avoid doing this. But also, um, it, it, this approach forces us to deal with difficult passages that we would rather avoid. And today's passage is definitely one that I would rather avo- avoid. So, you know, when I picked out Exodus, you know, it's this amazing story. It's great. It's got all these great things in it, plagues and seas dividing and like tabernacles and all this stuff. And it's really exciting. Uh, But all along, ever since I've made the decision to start this book, this passage has kind of been hung in the background, uh, feeling, feeling me with trepidation and dread. So... You know, there's many questions that we, you know, when we get here and we finally make it to this passage, it is absolutely bonkers. So if you are hearing this passage and maybe, you know, you haven't read Exodus in a long time and maybe forgot about this part, or, or maybe this is the first time you've ever heard this. Uh, if you're like, what the heck is going on? This sounds absolutely crazy. You're right. Okay. Uh, there's many, many questions here. Uh, why is God trying to kill Moses? Didn't God just commission Moses uh, to free the Israelites from Egypt? Isn't that really what you've been talking about like the last eight weeks, right? Uh, killing Moses at this point seems like it would be counterproductive. What did Moses do to justify the attack? Uh, I mean, Moses is just packing up his family and going to Egypt, exactly what God had just told him to do. So why is, why is God attacking Moses here? Uh, you know, the text just says all of a sudden Yahweh met him and sought to put him into death. And here's the crazy thing. If you read this in the like original text, we don't even know who the, uh, him is almost no, almost there, there's almost no names. If your text gives a name it's almost always a pronoun that the text is trying to make clear to you. A lot of times it just says like Yahweh went to kill him. And we don't know who the antecedent of that pronoun is. Uh, You know, we're not sure if uh, God is trying to kill Moses or if it's Moses's son. And why does circumcision solve the problem? How does Zipporah know that circumcising uh, was the right thing to do? And what's this part about smearing bloody foreskin on someone's feet? And then uh, who does she even smear it on? Is it Moses or is it Moses' son Gershom? Uh, the text just says him. We don't know who the text is referring to. And then why are we talking about circumcision of bloody foreskins in the first place? It's gross and weird, okay? So uh, all of these things are like great questions that you've probably been asking. Uh, and then, of course, the biggest question How in the world can this passage have any relevance at all to us? So that's my task today. Um, And I am not, uh, I'm going to start for the, say from the outset that I am not going to be able to answer all uh, the questions that we have on this passage. You know, I will not satisfy your curiosity on a lot of it because as I began studying for this, lots of ink has been spilled and many arguments have been made over all of these questions by people who are much smarter than me. 
And a sermon where I just stood up here and gave you the arguments for one side, you know, or another, and, uh, you know, tried to give the different answers to these questions would be long and boring, and it probably wouldn't be very edifying. So the approach I'm going to take is a little different. What I'm going to do is I'm going to examine what we do know and allow much of the ambiguity to remain. And as I, I think we'll learn as we do this approach, the ambiguity is part of the point. So, what can we say for certain about this passage? Well, you know, in big picture here, Yahweh, God, is threatening someone, maybe Moses, um, maybe Gershom, and Zipporah resolves this crisis by performing a circumcision. So, I think the best place to start is with circumcision. Uh, so yeah, I want to do my like uh, 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 Jerry Seinfeld here. Like, what's the deal with circumcision? You know, uh, circumcision is admittedly a very weird practice. You know, it involves the removal of the foreskin from the penis. Um, it was practiced in a lot of different forms in a lot of different ways by various cultures in the ancient Near East. It is not uh, just uh, an Israelite practice. It was done different ways and all kinds of stuff, but undoubtedly in that world, it was probably more meaningful and not as strange as it is to us. It was another one of these common practices in the Old Testament, in the time of the Old Testament that God used and transformed because it communicated something into this world. Same thing with other ideas in the Old Testament that are like really kind of foreign and unfamiliar to us. You know, we read a lot about holiness, like holiness is a big deal in the Old Testament. Sacrifice is a big deal in the Old Testament. Those things are bloody and weird and strange and I don't really understand either, but they spoke to people back then. They were also not exclusive to the Israelites. Holiness and sacrifice were like common things throughout the ancient Near East. So, you know, all these things were something that was totally normal in the ancient Near World or ancient world. But because we are from a completely different cultural place, uh, it's kind of hard to wrap our heads around and think about these practices. So... Let's begin to look, and let's look at what the Old Testament tells us about circumcision. Now, this is a symbolic ritual practice. And one thing we need to keep in mind with symbols like this, particularly ritual symbols, is they are not about one thing. You cannot reduce them to like one point. Ritual symbols usually contain a multitude of meanings. You know, and, and, and here's a good example. Take, for example, the Lord's Supper. You know, Chris and I, uh, sometimes uh, before we administer the Lord's Supper, we give some meaning, some context for it. You know, we're not just like, you know, drinking uh, wine and eating bread. We try to explain what it is. And a lot of times uh, when we give that explanation, it's completely different from the one that maybe uh, Chris gave the week before. I gave two weeks ago Uh, because the Lord's Supper is not just about one thing. It's a symbol of how Christ becomes part of us. We ingest the elements. Uh, You know, it's about community that is shared between God, between us and God, and between us and each other. It's about remembering the blood and the body that was crushed and spilled out for us. It's about the new covenant and the ideas that come around with new covenant. It's about blessing and prosperity. It's about transformation of, you know, common elements into something that has a greater meaning. You can go on and on. Well, in the same way, circumcision works the same way. So the practice first appears in Genesis 17, which is what we we just read a few minutes ago. God makes a covenant with Abram, promising Abram numerous descendants. 
And he's a sign of that promise. Abram and his descendants were to circumcise all their male offspring at the age of eight days old. And that sign would be a reminder of this promise because it was Abraham and his descendants that God would use in God's plan to bring peace, prosperity, flourishing, and life into the world. Okay. Now, in the ancient world, circumcision was typically a ritual that was performed at puberty, but here it's performed in infancy. Uh, those marked would be known uh, from the beginning as heirs to this promise, this promise given to Abram. They were separated early in their life and dedicated to a divine task. And this promise involved descendants. It made sense. It was exercised on the organ of reproduction. Flesh was removed, indicating a separation from what came before and a symbolic removal of the sin and evil that was represented by flesh. Uh, In this way, circumcision uh, represents a transformation into a different calling in life. Notice that Abram's name is changed to Abraham. Abram means my father is great, the old life. And Abraham means father of a great number. So it's like the future hope of Abraham and his descendants. Circumcision is is an identification with a calling, you know, this mission that Abraham and his descendants have been set out to. And failure to participate in this calling means that one is not identified with it anymore. According to Genesis 17, anyone who does not cut off the foreskin is cut off from God's people. Circumcision is also about judgment. So think back to the story of Noah. Noah's a weird story. Noah begins with God's, uh, God's plan to bring life, flourishing, prosperity to the world. And it's being threatened because people are evil and bad. And so God sends the flood to cleanse the earth, leaving only Noah and his family. But even after that, we find that evil and sin and death is not so easily uh, cleansed. Uh, In a replay of the garden story from Eden, we find that evil is still present in Noah and his family. And so God, uh, you know, he gives the sign of the rainbow. We remember that story from Sunday school class, right? God sends the rainbow and he says, I'm not going to destroy the earth again because everybody's evil and bad. So the weird thing about the Noah story is it starts off, God destroys the world because everybody's evil and bad. And he says, you know, I can't just keep doing this because everybody's just evil and bad. And then Genesis 9-11 reads, I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by waters of the flood and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Yeah, hear, hear those words there, flesh and cut off. The word for cut off is the same word that's used to describe the process of circumcision in Genesis 17. Circumcision is about the cutting off of the flesh. And so there's this idea of judgment in circumcision, but it's a restrained judgment. Only part of the flesh is removed. This symbolic of the whole that should be removed, but which God has promised not to because uh, God has a plan and a purpose for humanity and creation that is being worked out through Abraham and his descendants. So, you know, I'm trying to bring all these ideas and they're like kind of like layered on top of each other. They don't directly connect necessarily. We just have layers and layers of meaning, you know, like an onion or a parfait or something like that. Um, But the idea of judgment is particularly important here. What I want to talk about, um, you know, think about this. Think about... um, 
a lot of times we kind of read this story or we read this and we don't read it in context. You know, one of the big things that, that um, Chris and I are, are, are you know, really important uh, when we look at uh, passages is we, we kind of suffer from like blocking off passages and not reading them in context. What comes right before Genesis 17? Because usually we don't read this, this, this passage about circumcision in the context of what comes before it. And we miss a really important point because immediately before Genesis 17 is the story of Hagar. Okay, now we've talked about Hagar a lot recently. She's actually played a big role uh, in the Exodus story because Hagar was an Egyptian slave that was owned by Abraham. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> you know, an Egyptian slave. So that's got to be significant, right? Because we're talking about Exodus where, you know, there's like the Egyptians are enslaving the Israelites. And the story of Hagar goes that Abraham and his wife, Sarah, need an heir, but Sarah's barren. So uh, what Sarah does is she arranged for Abraham to have a child through Hagar. Now, after Abraham does this, Hagar becomes pregnant. Sarah gets jealous. She treats Hagar harshly to the point where Hagar runs away to the wilderness to her certain death. And fortunately, in Genesis 16, God sends an angel to save Hagar from, from the certain death. So let's think about what's happened. Let's, let's follow the story of Genesis. So Genesis 15 uh, starts off with God making a, a covenant with Abram, promising all these great blessings and descendants. Uh, and, you know, there's like animals cut in half and all that kind of stuff. Abraham and his wife decide that they are going to make their own arrangements for descendants using a person that they own. Abram sexually assaults her, and then Sarah sends her to her death. Also, you know, she was like enslaved. So, you know, here's the thing, you know, that's like all like bad, okay? Uh, you know, I, I won't belabor the point, but none of that's like good. Okay, and then we come to Genesis 17. Even though God had previously promised descendants, God is doing so again here. But now he requires Abraham to cut off uh, his and his male children's foreskin using that same verb that God used in the flood story when God flooded the earth because everyone was evil and bad. So, and, you know, pretty significant, this sign was performed on the same organ Abram had just used when he insulted Hagar. So there's probably more of a connection there than, like, we usually make out. And the point, then, is that circumcision is a sign and a promise of blessing of descendants about being part of God's chosen people, being tasked with the mission of bringing blessing to the earth. However, circumcision is also a sign that those chosen people sit under God's judgment. Their special called out chosen transformed status does not relieve them of their ethical responsibilities and circumcision is a sign that they are still under God's judgment. And so what I, my whole point here in talking about all this is that we have all these related ideas, okay? They're, it's kind of a jumble, right? You know, don't, don't look for like uh, necessarily like strict coherence here. You're supposed to kind of hold all these ideas together because this is a ritual symbol and they're complicated. You know, we have all these ideas, separation from the world, dedication to God's plan of restoration from the world, separation from sin, transformation from one way of living to another, promises of blessing resulting in flourishing abundance, uh, but also judgment. 
All of these all together wrapped up in this idea of circumcision. So now that we kind of understand that better, what we need to do is take those ideas and look at our passage from Exodus. And for now, uh, though, uh, I just want to look at the, the, this passage that, from Exodus in the context of our story of Exodus so far. So our, our, our passage comes basically at the conclusion of like what I would call the first act of the Exodus story. Okay, Exodus began, begins by stating the problem, which is the Israelites are enslaved and oppressed by Pharaoh. And at the end of chapter two, we read that the Israelites groaned and that Yahweh hears and takes note of their suffering. And Exodus four, our passage today, ends with the, with the Israelites believing that Yahweh had visited his people and that Yahweh had seen their affliction. Uh, the next act of the drama will be Yahweh confronting Pharaoh to actually free his people. So we kind of have this like, um, you know, uh, block this story coming to a conclusion here. Now, in order to do this, in order to accomplish this freeing of the Israelites from the Egyptian, Yahweh had commissioned Moses. Yet as we have seen, Moses is kind of a mixed up character to this point in the story. Moses seems to have a passion for justice for his fellow Hebrews and for the uh, Midianite uh, women at the well. However, in, in one of these instances, Moses act rashly and rather than leading into any real improvement, it results in Moses' exile. Moses is also uh, hesitant. He's fearful. He's constantly bargaining with God over the mission God is, has given him. And despite uh, everything that God does to accommodate Moses, uh, you know, not to mention the fact that he like shows up in a burning bush and like talks to him. Uh, Moses ends this discussion by saying, you know, really, I want you to send someone else. And you know, it's funny because there's like this really long conversation with Moses in which like God is like pretty much super patient. And then like Moses is like, can't you send someone else? And it's like, finally at that part, it says like God got angry. Um, but in addition, we have this uh, issue that we've been talking about uh, that we brought up several times in this story, which is the issue of Moses' identity. Moses is really neither Israelite, Egyptian, or Midianite. The name Moses is even ambiguous. Moses is an Egyptian name, uh, but it's been given an Egyptian. It's been given a Hebrew meaning by an Egyptian princess, which is weird, and she doesn't even get it right. Uh, Moses is a stranger in a foreign land now. He's in Midian. Uh, and he names his son. Remember, he names his son Gershom because he is a stranger in an alien land. He's been rejected by the Egyptians. He's been rejected by the Israelites. And he's really not entirely at home in Midian. And so at the point uh, that we enter today's passage, we have Moses with all this mixed up identity and we have him entering in to this weirdo passage that's full of questions and ambiguity. Uh, you know, notice the setting. The setting is at night, okay? Remember, they don't have electricity back then, so night's a scary place. It's in an inn, all right? It's at a lodging place on the way. You know, a place with no name. No name is, we don't know where he's stopping at. Uh, in an in a, uh, inn is, of course, not a home. He is neither in Midian, nor is he in Egypt. It's an in-between place. It's in the wilderness. Everything about it is unsettled. 
You know, we're supposed to have this really unsettled feeling. In fact, uh, yeah, it's funny, like every time I read, if you read about this, like all the scholars use the same word, which like, okay, like uh, teenagers, listen up, because this is like the best SAT and SA word, liminal space. They call it the liminal space, which means like an in-between undefined space that's neither here nor there. Yeah, put that in an essay, you get an A, I promise. Okay, so it's in a liminal space. And so I think it's possible that that's part of the reason these pronouns are so confusing and that it's unsettled. It's kind of keeping with the atmosphere of what's going on here. Uh, You're meant to read this story as like confusing and jarring because it's reflective of Moses himself. Earlier, God had told Moses that the, uh, uh, just, just right before this happened, God had told Moses that the Egyptian authorities that wanted to kill him are all dead. And this probably would have given Moses like a sigh of relief. Uh, however, we find Moses threatened now, but this time by God. In fact, it's like the same words that are being used here. And I think that is a clue to what's going on here. Remember that I said a few weeks ago that the point of the Exodus is not merely freedom from Egyptian slavery. It is about moving from the service of Pharaoh to the service of Yahweh. And I think that's what we have going on here. Moses has been relieved of the threat from Pharaoh, but not from the threat of Yahweh. I think Yahweh is, uh, by exercising this kind of like judgment, by putting Moses under judgment, is actually claiming Moses as his own. He's under his authority, his judgment now. Yahweh has just announced that just because Pharaoh had threatened the Israelites, um, who Yahweh considers his firstborn son, Yahweh is going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn son. And this has to be important uh, for this story because immediately, because this story occurs immediately after. Uh, Moses, and by extension, the Israelites may be chosen, but they are still under Yahweh's judgment. They are no purer than the Egyptians, in other words. Circumcision is a part of that judgment. It's a cutting off. Remember, it's a cutting off of some flesh, only because God had promised that God would no longer cut off all flesh. Now, it's interesting here that Zipporah is the one who gets this somehow. You know, like she knows what's going on, Zipporah. And it's kind of weird that she does because she's not an Israelite, right? She's, she's a Midianite. Uh, we don't know like really why she knows about any of these things. There's lots of speculation. I won't bore you with, with all the arguments. But the point is she knows what to do. Uh, typically, though, uh, the father was charged with uh, performing the circumcision Um, But, you know, in a way, isn't this like in keeping with the rest of the story of the Exodus, right? Because like at almost every key point in the Exodus, it's a woman that steps up to be the hero. Uh, you know, we have Shifra and Pua, the midwives, you remember, uh, that, that, that saved the Egyptian babies. Uh, we have Moses' mother placing Moses in the basket and saving him. We have the daughter of Pharaoh adopting Moses. And we have Moses' sister, uh, Miriam, given the Pharaoh's daughter information about where to find a midwife or how to find a wet nurse. And, and so here's the thing. Here's something kind of cool. The, the name Zipporah is actually like basically the same name in Hebrew as the midwife Shifra. It's only like one letter of difference between the two. Only the first letter is slightly different. And in the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the names are actually the same. Do you know what name they used? Chris, you know what name? Mm-hmm. If you were going to go get makeup at South Point, where would you go? Zipporah. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Zip- I do go there. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> 
I knew you would know that. But yeah, Sephora is actually the name given to like Shifra and Zipporah in the Greek Old Testament. So that's kind of cool. Now, now here's the thing. Okay, so let's, let's take all this together. Now, if we want to understand Exodus, okay, a good thing to do might be, Kaden, what's a good thing to do if we want to understand Exodus? Ah, oh, Genesis. Genesis. Yeah, that's right. We need to understand Genesis. So it turns out that if we, we have a really similar story to what's going on here in Genesis, in Genesis 32. Okay, Jacob. Okay, Jacob. Remember Jacob. Jacob's on his way from this foreign place where he met his wife. Okay, that sounds familiar. Okay, and he's going on a mission to reconcile with his brother Esau. See all the parallels, right? Okay, and along the way, at an in-between place, at night, that isn't named, right? He's attacked by a mysterious figure who turns out to be God and wrestles him all night long. Okay, and uh, God uh, dislocates Jacob's hip, but he also blesses Jacob, giving Jacob a new name. From now on, Jacob will no longer be named as Jacob, which means heel grabber, which is supposed to be understood like a, like we might think of a con man. Okay, He's going to be known as Israel, which means God fights. Jacob's been transformed. Uh, so you see there's like a lot of similar features. And in fact, there's another story that I really can't get into, which is too bad because it's a really cool story. But in the book of Numbers, there's a story about Balaam, uh, the, the prophet from Moab, and it's got like, a lot of the same features. So, you know, if you have time, go look into that. But my point is, these similar stories are not just like coincidental. What I think is going on here is this is a part of a type scene. Remember, we've talked about several other type scenes already. Meeting your wife at the well. uh, uh, The prophetic call. In a type scene, uh, in, in in this type scene, there's a hero. The hero's on a mission. Uh, that mission, uh, while on that mission, the hero is threatened by some kind of divine encounter and an in-between place at night that results in some kind of physical injury. But the key is the encounter results in this like fundamental transformation of the hero. So I think while when we come across the story, like while it is super weird to us, I think anyone in the ancient Near East would have heard this and this would kind of be what they were expecting because this was like a type story. This is kind of like a necessary part of the hero's transformation. And indeed, Moses is transformed here. Moses has symbolically gone through a process of death and rebirth. Uh, In-between places are scary because they're unstructured. However, that means they are open. They're open to new possibilities because there's a separation from the old. The old conventions, the old ideas are gone, and so we can have transformation. Moses has left Egypt. Moses has left Midian. Moses is no longer under Jethro's authority. Moses is no longer under Pharaoh's authority. But what has happened here is Moses has been fully claimed by Yahweh's authority. The circumcision has confirmed Moses' identity as an Israelite. Moses' identity is no longer ambiguous. In the final scene here, uh, we have uh, Moses being fully accepted by his brother Aaron and the Israelite elders as their leader, acting under Yahweh, the God of their fathers, in order to bring the people out of Egypt. From now on in the story, Moses is going to act boldly 
and we will no longer see the vacillating Moses of before. Moses has been reborn and resurrected as a new person to carry out a mission he has been tasked with. It's been messy, it's been difficult, it's been scary, but Moses has emerged with a clear identity, fully equipped to carry out this mission that God has given him. So what does that mean for us? Because this stuff is weird. Well, fortunately, we do not have to have a mortally threatening encounter with God in the wilderness. And no one needs to perform a hasty surgical operation with a foot knife. Thank goodness. Uh, Paul tells us in Colossians that we have already been transformed by being reunited with the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus goes to the in-between spaces at night as our representative is God's firstborn receiving the judgment and blessings of the covenant. Jesus undergoes the ultimate death and rebirth, transformed to complete the mission that God had tasked for humanity all along, the resurrection of all creation to a world of prosperity, flourishing, abundance, and life. If you read Colossians 2.11, it says, You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. And without hands is kind of a fancy way of saying by God, that that's carried out by divine means, not by physical means. Paul goes on to say that this divine circumcision puts off the body of the flesh. Remember, the flesh symbolically leads to all the bad stuff. Uh, it, it, it means all the bad stuff that needs to be cut off. The violence, oppression, evil that people bring into the world, right? In our symbol of baptism, which also represents judgment and blessing, death and rebirth, we are symbolically died and raised again, just as with Christ. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Like Moses, we have all been taken from this old world with our old identity and our old ways. We owe no allegiance to anyone anymore. We have been freed. We've been freed to a new life of service to God's new world. We've been given a new identity and new ways. Our allegiance is now to Christ because it is Christ's vision and Christ's mission and Christ's purpose that we now live for. Another word for that is faith. What does this look like? Well, it doesn't look like Pharaoh. Paul will go on in Colossians to describe what it does look like. This is from Colossians chapter 3. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And above all of these, it is love which binds everything in perfect harmony. Because of what Christ did on the cross was not just to show us he was really God by rising from the dead. It was actually much more than that. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authority. The death and resurrection uh, of, took away the power of this world. And it took away the power of all the pharaohs of the world. And so we have been set free and reborn, just like circumcision symbolized. And now we can challenge the authorities of this world as agents of this new world, bringing hope by showing this world a new way, God's way, where love is the ultimate rule. And along with love comes flourishing abundance in life. This is our transformation and our new identity, confirmed as God's firstborn son, subject only to God's judgment and looking forward to the promised blessing of a world transformed and set free to love. Therefore, we go forward on this mission and practice resurrection.
Um, thoughts or questions? Yes. It sounds like Moses married Sephora, having been given her as his bride by Jethro, his father-in-law. Moses kind of became a child of Midian. Correct. Without fully embracing it. So when he came back from the burning bush and told Jethro, yeah. he was basically renouncing the apprenticeship as a Midianite and Did saying, you? I'm really a Jew because I'm going to go... I don't think quite. I actually think that's there because I think the point of him asking for permission